You know, Hunter, we do appreciate you a lot. And I said that from the pulpit last week, so it's recorded somewhere. So I'd, I'd love to give a rebuttal to some of the things that he said. But I'm just going to share a verse that came to mind during that time. It says, this is Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, <laughs> their part will be in the lake of fire. Well, we won't go with that, so... I'm just saying, Hunter, I'm just saying. I wasn't even going to mention that I was sick on, I threw up on Easter, but I came and preached. But you know what, actually, I, let, me, let me get, hold on, hold on, let me say this. I'm going to admit this publicly. Hunter's job on Sunday morning is way harder than mine is, okay? It really is, because even though we're looking into scripture, it's, it's, this whole thing is, is, you know, sometimes you think the pastor, that's like, you know, the, the spiritual part, but this whole thing is spiritual. Hunter leads and his team and like Riley last week stuff leads us into the to the throne of God every Sunday and that is no less a spiritual thing than looking into into God's word and so uh, so his job is way harder on Sunday morning so that just shows you a guy can be sick and come up and still preach but to, to do all the stuff he does on Sunday morning that is a lot harder when you're sick so man I, I actually recognize that you work hard on Sunday mornings and I appreciate that All right, well, the title of today's message might freak out some of you. Um, it's a new church with a new focus. And I know some of you guys may be looking and go like, oh, no, what is this intro I'm about to try to get our church to do now? Don't worry. It's not anything new. It's not anything. We're going to talk about a new church in the scripture with a new focus that it had. So we're going to continue looking at the book of Acts. Now, last week we looked into Acts uh, chapter 10, and uh, we saw about Peter going and talking to Cornelius. In Acts chapter 11, the first half of that is Peter just recounting that to the Jerusalem church, telling people about it. So we studied it last week. So we're going to skip forward to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. But before we do, let's take a look at the map for a moment and look at how the, the, the gospel has spread. Now, it started here in Jerusalem. See the, just a little corner there in the Mediterranean Sea there. But it expanded then to the Hellenistic Jews in that area. Then it went to Samaria. Then it went to Gaza, where... where um, uh, Philip talked to, talked to the Ethiopian eunuch, and from there, Peter went and preached around Joppa, and then eventually up to Caesarea Maritima that we looked at last week. But look at this now. This is where the gospel has gone, and as far as we know, as best we can tell, it's been about, at this point in the book of Acts, it's been about 10 years since Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. So it's actually been, been a decade, maybe. At this point that's our best guess it's actually it's been many years we know that which by the way ought to be an encouragement to all of us to remember that God does not work on our time frame all right we read this we read the book of Acts and it's you read chapter 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 it looks like the gospel just spread like wildfire but it was a tough it was a slog and a decade later the message of Jesus has only gone to a small portion of the Roman Empire now yeah we looked at last week there was the Ethiopian guy and he went down to Ethiopia and that was a big deal that was a big deal, but we don't know if anybody went with him, where hopefully he told people about Jesus there, but that was just one guy. And yes, there were people that came at Pentecost and they went back, but we don't have any information about churches springing up or there being great revivals or anything going on. And Jesus gave his, his followers, in one of the very first sermons I preached, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. They've got that part. But he says, and as far as the remotest part of the earth. 
So at this point, the gospel is still pretty much in a small corner of the Roman Empire, and it's still pretty much Jewish. There have been a few Gentile believers, and we're starting to see the first of that. But still, most of the believers there were, had some kind of Jewish background. Now let's jump in verse 19, because that's all about to change even more. And if you hadn't learned it yet, God is all about change. Okay, change is going on all the time. As much as we don't like it, it's going on. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Again, see, just the Jewish people. That's what a lot of people are doing. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the grace of God and was glad and encouraged for all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this development of the church at Antioch, Father, we just, we want that same kind of excitement, not for the thrills, Father, but we want that same kind of excitement because of what it meant to the people of that community, to the world there, to the people who needed to hear about Jesus. And Father, we want to be that same kind of church. We want to be the same kind of disciples who will boldly spread your word and spread your message everywhere we go. And Father, as we look into your word today, help us to learn what the church of Antioch would look like today. We want to be that church, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today as we look at this turning, new turning point, and again, change, 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 all right? And um, you know what they say about, you know, <clears throat> it's an old joke about, about Baptists, and that's our background, even though we don't talk about it a lot. They say, how many, how many Baptists to, ch to change a light bulb? And the answer is, change? All right, so... You know, we're not used to change, but change is going on all the time here. So this is a huge turning point for the church again, and we're going to look at it through the lenses of four people or groups of people in here. So the first one we're going to look at is the people I call the status quo disciples. These are the status quo people. Now Luke refers back <clears throat> in, the, in these verses we just read to Acts 8.1, where the Hellenistic believers had to flee from Jerusalem because of the great persecution that was either started by Saul, that we look at later, all right, so by Saul of Tarsus. He was either led, uh, started by him or at least led in part by him. And we know that was at least three years ago from some other dating of things that we have going on here. So we know this from other Bible verses and from other, other historical data. So it had been about three years since Paul had uh, started the persecution and eventually become a Christian himself. Now, when they spread out, many of these disciples went beyond Judea and Samaria, and they went up into Phoenicia and Cyrus, Cyprus and Antioch. Now, some of these people were originally from Cyprus. Let's look at the map again there, okay? 
So there's Cyprus, way up there where the island of Cyprus is today. Some of those people were originally from Cyprus, and they were just heading home. These might have been people that 10 years ago had been there at Pentecost and stayed and learned about Christ or whatever. It might have been people traveling to Jerusalem for business or, or as a part of the, one of the festivals or something. So some of them might have just been people traveling home. But he mentions a couple of people. He mentions uh, disciples who are from Cyrene. Now that's way over in what's Libya today. So way out over there, there were actually, we find out there were some disciples spreading the message over there. But some of these people from Cyrene also went up towards Antioch. All right, and then that's where they wound up is Antioch, way up there, okay? Antioch, now, let's talk about this Antioch for a moment. Antioch was the capital city of the Roman province of Syria. And it's, it's about where Syria is today. And so that was the Roman province of Syria. Palestine was the, was the one below, and then you had Syria up next. So it'd be like for us, people going up to Oregon, okay? So people went up to, what's the capital? Is, is it Eugene? Is that the capital of Oregon? I'm trying to remember. Salem, thank you, thank you, I, I, thank you, Joyce, I appreciate it. You guys are freaking me out sitting up front today here like this. This is there, more change going on. The, the Izzards and Barbara always sit way back over there, and today, for, if you're online, sorry, just fast forward to this part, it's me getting my ADD kicking in here, all right? But, um, so they're traveling up to, now Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire of that time, and it was third most important, so really it's not more like Salem Oregon, but it's more like Chicago would be in the U.S., okay? So here they go. Chicago, it was this, this huge city. It was about a half million people, which is about the size of Fresno. But, um, but that was a pretty large city for that day. Rome was probably about a million people. This was about, about a half million. It had the Temple of Daphne there, and one of the main features of worship there was spending time with the temple priestesses. And since this is a day we're not having Kidsville, and it's more of a family day, I'm just going to be delicate with this and say, one of the ways you worshipped at the Temple of Daphne was to spend not so much quality time with one of the temple priestesses, okay? So fill in the blanks there, you know what I mean? So that's the kind of city that Antioch was. Antioch had a reputation for low moral standards. In fact, there was a writer of the time, a Roman writer uh, named um, Juvenal, who wrote this, he says, and he wrote this, says, the filth of the Orontes, which is, the, wor- which is the, the river that flowed through Antioch. He said, the, the filth of Orontes has flowed into the Tiber, which is the river flowing through Rome. Now, they were very far apart, but what he's saying is, the ugly, nasty stuff that happens in Antioch is affecting us here in Rome. Now, think about it for a moment. That was a thousand miles away. And this was before the days of social media. So for a reputation of a city to spread a thousand miles away like that, that city had to have a pretty bad reputation. And Antioch was not normally the place where you would think about starting a church. But it was where they went and where they wound up uh, sharing sharing with people about Jesus. So now these believers told other people about Jesus. But they only told Jewish people. It says that clearly. It says speaking only to, to, to no one except Jews. Now, first, this is sort of understandable. And I don't want to be angry at these. I call them the status quo disciples. And we sort of use that as a bad word. But I do want to say that it's sort of natural for that to happen. Let's think, think of it this way. Do we have anybody in our church that like, has ties to Latvia? Okay, good. I didn't think so. So I'll, that's why I'm going to use that as a country, all right? Let's say that you moved to Latvia that you, you moved there for your work and whatever, 
If you moved to Latvia, probably what you would do is you would probably find other English-speaking people. When I lived in Puerto Rico, my family was not fluent enough in Spanish to be able to worship, so we found an English-speaking church. We went to a Nazarene church for a while because that was the closest English-speaking church at that time. And uh, so if you went to Latvia, you'd probably hang around, you'd hang around in the businesses where you might find people that, um, that uh, you know, that we can get a hamburger rather than whatever they eat in Latvia. I don't know what all the food is there. Uh, and if you're Latvian and watching, I apologize. Send me a message. I would love to know. Meet you at a Latvian restaurant at some point. But um, the, um, so, so you probably hang around with them. And even after you learned Lettish, which that is the name of the language in Latvia, you still might hang out with more Americans because it was a little bit of home. And, and, and so, you, you know, that's the people you would hang out with. Uh, you, you probably, if you ever went to a McDonald's, that you would probably wind up um, seeing Americans there, okay? Because Latvians are probably too smart to go to McDonald's. So that's, that's where you'd hang out. And so that'd be the people who'd be most, most um, the best recipients of your message about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that's all we should do, but I'm saying it's normal that we hang around with people who are like us a lot of times. So that's one of the reasons why I don't get upset sometimes about, you've heard people talk about the statement, this is a sidebar, but I, I, I want you to not hear what I'm not saying, okay? That we, we get a lot of criticism sometimes as Christians because I've heard people say, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most se racially segregated time in the, in the nation. Now, one, I don't think that's true. Most of the churches I've been a part of have been somewhat diverse. Now, our church probably has more Anglos than anything here, but we have people from a lot of different backgrounds. There are a lot of multicultural churches there, and I know our church would welcome anybody from, from any place, but churches have a culture, and we tend to attract people who are similar in that culture a lot, and so that's, that's normal. But it, it, as long as it has to do with what attracts people, that's, that's fine. If we're ever doing it to, to cut somebody out, that would be a wrong thing to do. So I just want you to know that I'm not... I'm not praising these guys for only speaking to the Jews, but I'm saying it's understandable that's sort of naturally who they are. When I worked in San Diego for a while, I worked with a church that, uh, that was mainly designed for people from Ethiopia. Actually, it was an Ethiopian church that we had, and they had their services in Amharic, which is the language of Ethiopia. And, uh, man, I was okay with that. I, I loved that. We had another church that was basically for people from Myanmar, and so they had their services in Burmese. And I'm, so I'm saying, if you need to have a service in Amharic to reach Ethiopians, do it. If you need to have a service in Burmese to reach people from Myanmar, do it. But also your church needs to be open to everybody. And so, and I think most churches do a good job of that. But, um, but I'm just saying it's understandable. But fortunately, there were some disciples who went beyond that. And that's who we're going to look at next. We're going to look at the bridge-crossing disciples. And these are actually the guys that I really want to praise. I don't want to condemn the other guys, but I don't want to praise that because I'd rather us be, I would rather us be bridge-crossing disciples than status quo disciples. So we, think, we see these guys in verse 20. In verse 20 it says, But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. So some of these crazy Christ followers who were, as we learn later in Acts, were turning the world upside down, started sharing Jesus, not just with Hellenistic Jews, but with Joe Gentile. Just ordinary Greek-speaking people of any background, they started sharing the message with anybody who would listen, Jewish or not. And this wasn't isolated non-Jewish people. These weren't proselytes. 
These weren't God-fearers like the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius. Cornelius. These are what I call run-of-the-mill, garden-variety, generic Gentiles, heathens, pagans, people who didn't know Solomon from Samson and had no concept of the idea of a Messiah. You see, one of the things that the, when the gospel started, it was easy to talk with the Jews about it because they had this concept of a Messiah coming. They were looking for a Messiah, and Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, you may know, Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah. So we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus the Messiah, the appointed one, the one coming to take away the sins of the world. But the Greek people had no concept of that. They, didn't, they, they were not looking for a Messiah. It was something totally foreign to them. In fact, if you look in verse 20 again, you'll notice that they didn't even refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. It says they spoke to them about the Lord Jesus. Because that's a concept that Greek-speaking people would understand. Because that word Lord, kurios, is the same word you would use for Caesar. Caesar, in fact, if you look in, uh, we won't move to it now, but Acts 25, verse 26, one of the Roman uh, governors is trying to write something to Caesar, and he refers to it, says, I did not know what to write to my Lord, referring to Caesar. It's the same word. So these, Jew, these Greek people would understand the idea of Lord. Jesus is king. Jesus is the one to whom we owe allegiance. Jesus is the one to whom we owe everything. So that's what they talked to him about, making Jesus Lord rather than looking for the Messiah. And let's be honest, for most of us, that's what we think about with Jesus. Most of us didn't grow up waiting for a Messiah. He'd already come. We talk about Jesus as Lord. And if you look at that, it looks like a lot of people. In verse 21, it looks like a lot of people came to believe in Jesus. Some professed it openly, some didn't. But do you understand what's happening here? Out through this time, we've gone through from the Jewish Jews to the Hellenistic Jews to the half-Jews of the Samaritans to the God-fearers. Now we're getting to the point of regular Gentiles becoming not Jewish converts, but going straight from Judaism to Jesus. I mean, going straight from being a Gentile to Jesus without going Judaism in between. Let me get that right again. I want to make sure you understood what I said there because I said it wrong. They didn't go Gentile, Jewish Jesus. They skipped over the Jewish part and went Gentile all the way to Jesus. That was a big step for them. And it became its own church. It became the first truly Gentile church. And it was such a big deal that the news of the revival that was going in there reached 300 miles back down south to Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem responded much in the same way they did with Samaria. They responded by sending the person who's the focus of our third group of people, and that is what I call the people-developing disciple, and that's Barnabas. You guys know Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas is mentioned 28 times in the New Testament. He was the first one to sell some land and donate it to the church. That was back at the end of Acts chapter 4. He was the one who vouched for Paul in front of the, in, in front of the um, uh, uh, apostles after Paul became a Christ follower. We sort of skipped that part, and Paul talks about it in other places. But when Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, they were like, that's the guy that was persecuting everybody. Um, no, we're not, this is a setup. This is, they, they'd watch too many cheap TV dramas, I guess. Like, that's a setup coming up there, and we don't trust him. 
but Barnabas went and vouched for Paul and said, he's okay, he's going to be all right. Um, and you find out later, we're going to look next week, that he was Paul's partner on the first missionary journey. Now, Barnabas' actual name was Joseph. That was his real name. But Barnabas was his nickname. Now, I guess it could have been a name. Barnabas would mean son of Nabus, but we don't have any record of anybody ever being named Nabus, but Nabus encourager. So his, his, his nickname was son of encouragement. So even though he was, known, he was named Joseph, everybody called him Barney because he was known for encouraging people. In fact, it's the widespread belief of biblical scholars that Barnabas got the nickname because he was the CEO of the early church, the chief encouragement officer, all right? So that's what we, in fact, every church needs one of those, okay? The chief encouragement officer. And you know those people, when you talk to them, no matter how, how bad you feel or no matter how good you feel, you feel better after talking with them, right? I mean, those chief encouragement officers, they can mess up a bad mood, so, you know? You're just like, my bad mood's gone now. I'm happy. What's going on here, all right? So we need those chief encouragement officers. And therefore, he was the perfect person for the Jerusalem church to send. It was the church leader's way of saying, man, there's something great going up in Antioch. Let's send Barney because he's going to make it better. He's going to help them out. And also, he was perfect because Barnabas was from Cyprus. He knew the neighborhood. It was a homegrown kid going back. And let me tell you, that's not easy sometimes, okay? I work with churches all over the place, and I'm recognized with churches, and that's not brag, I'm just saying it's, it's positional kind of thing, that I'm, oh, Daryl, who was, uh, you know, the, the, the church consultant, the interim pastor, the, 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 the conference leader, whatever like that. There is one church in this country I can go to, and I am nothing but, that's Julian and Jerry's little boy right there. That's the church I grew up in, all right? They are never, they, nobody there will ever see me as an adult. I'm 65 years old, and I go back there, and I still get stories of, I remember having you in the nursery. So, and I don't have heart to tell them I didn't move there until I was 12, but they still remember me in the nursery or whatever, all right? So, um, so Barnabas was going back to his hometown, his home people, but he knew the neighborhood. He knew the lay of the land, and it was probably his friends that were causing the ruckus up there anyway in Antioch. So he was a great person to send. Now, if you want to get an idea of who Barnabas was like, I'm going to use an example. Now, it's a secular example, okay? But I'm just using it to show somebody that has some of the same qualities that Barnabas had, though, from a spiritual standpoint, all right? And that person is Oprah Winfrey. Now, I don't know whether you like Oprah Winfrey. In fact, as far as this sermon goes, I don't care whether you like Oprah Winfrey or not, all right? I really don't care. But here's how Oprah Winfrey is sort of like Barnabas, okay? You guys ever heard of uh, Dr. Phil? Okay, you know why you know Dr. Phil? Oprah Winfrey. Now, this is not as great an example as it used to be because of recent politics, but how many of you know Dr. Oz? Okay, well, some people know Dr. Oz because of Senate races, but, um, but people got to know Dr. Oz first from Oprah Winfrey. All right, maybe you don't like Dr. Phil, maybe you don't like Dr. Oz, but who doesn't like Rachel Ray? Okay, how do we know her? Oprah Winfrey. All right, so again, I'm not talking about Oprah Winfrey and her politics or her beliefs or anything like that, but I'm just saying she was one that developed other people. That's one of the things she was good at, and she is good at that. And Barnabas was good at that also, that he was the one that would develop other people. And here's what it says about Barnabas. When, he, when Barnabas saw what they were doing in Antioch, he immediately went into encouragement mode. 
I mean, look at who Barnabas was. It says he rejoiced at what God was doing. Now, guys, I get convicted at that. Because they're, they're basically, when it comes to looking at things, there's two kinds of people in the world. Sorry, my, i got to keep adjusting my microphone here. There are people that look at things. There, there are two kinds of people. Barnabas was the kind of people that looked at something and said, wow, what's going right here so I can encourage it? Brothers and sisters, that's not me. All right? I'm one of those people that when I look at something, I usually look and go, okay, what's wrong with this so we can fix it? Because everything's something right or is wrong. All right, if everybody was like me, this would be a depressing place, okay? This would be a depressing place. That's why we have a team leading this church, why Hunter and we've got Red and, and Jeremy, our, our, our board members and stuff like that, because they're, I mean, look, pick on Red for a second, okay? Red's just one of those guys, you ever seen Red get mad? It's just like smooth, say, not, don't answer that, Debbie, you probably have, but you're probably the only one in the church that has seen him get mad, because there's, some, there's just people that have that encouragement kind of thing. Debbie's another, there are people that can be encouraging, and we have to have people that can be fixers of things. But Barnabas was that encourager, and he got excited about it. All right, so I want you to think about it for a moment. At the end of the service day, we're going to be taking a survey about what you guys would like to see in a new pastor. But let's, let's jump forward. Let's jump forward a couple of months, and we've called a new pastor. And again, I don't know how, many, how long it will take. Let's just say a couple of months right now. We've called a new pastor, and he started leading the church, and it's not exactly what you were thinking about, okay? Visit this way. You were saying, like, when the new pastor comes, this is the way I think we ought to go. And he didn't go this way. He kind of goes that way, all right? And we've got two choices then. We can say, like, okay, we need to fix this so it goes that way. Or we can say, well, thank you, God, it's not going this way, all right? So, and, and if God's blessing what we're doing, but it's not exactly what you were looking for, can you be a Barney? and still encourage people, and still be thankful for what God is doing, and bless what God is blessing, and do the work that God is blessing, and be excited about it, and rejoice in it. That's a Barnabas. Now, I'm not saying don't ever express your opinion. I'm not ever saying, you, it's not saying you can't say to your new pastor, well, we're doing, th doing this. I was kind of hoping to go that way. Well, you can say that if you want to, but you need to say that with, I was kind of hoping to go this way, but you know what? Man, God's blessing. Let's do what we need to do. That's what you got to do sometimes. That's Barnabas. And I know how hard it is. Many of you know that I worked for a ministry here in Fresno that, well, ran statewide that, that I worked at for 27 years. And uh, when I got laid off, um, the two guys in charge of it were, were pretty cold-blooded in the way they did it. I'm just going to be honest. That's how I felt. It was, um, um, I was laid off. A couple other people were too. And to me, it felt like I was getting fired for cause is what it felt like. I was asked to to leave the office immediately and to come back and pick up my computer after it had been sanitized and, um, and uh, pick, clean out my office on a Saturday when nobody was around. I couldn't even say goodbye to my assistant and, and stuff. And uh, it felt harsh and it hurt, I'll have to admit. And I'll be honest, for a while I had trouble rejoicing in what that office was doing. I really did. And it was wrong, but I had to, God was working on my heart to say, you know what, can you still be happy? And somebody would talk about something to be good going out of the office, and in my mind I'd be going, but they're doing this and this and this and this wrong. And that's just not the right way to be. I was not being a Barnabas. So I know it's hard. I'm admitting a failure there with you guys. But here's what I want to say. If we're going to be like Barnabas, we have to have a resolute heart. We have to be solid 
no matter what. We have to be faithful to the mission God has given us. And we have to encourage others to be faithful also. And honestly, sometimes it's difficult, but it's the right response for someone who has made Jesus their Lord. That's the right thing for us to do, to be a person who helps develop other disciples, to be a person who helps encourage the ministry and helps move us forward. And as an encourager and a people developer, Barnabas realized that this was the perfect place for someone else he knew to be able to use his gifts and develop them better. And Barnabas reached out to our fourth example, which I call the God-called leader. And that's Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who we eventually come to know as Paul the Apostle. All right, Paul, the writer of, of so much of the New Testament. So we don't know how long Barnabas was in Antioch, but it wasn't long before he decided to take a, a journey 140 miles north around the Mediterranean Sea to Tarsus to find this guy Saul. Saul, who had been a persecutor of the church. Saul, who had come to know Jesus. That's Acts chapter 9, if you want to go back and look at that at some point. Saul, who, who Barnabas had to defend before the, uh, the, the, the apostles in Jerusalem. And so he decided to go find Saul. Now, as I said, it was 140 miles. That's about the distance from here to the grapevine. But there was an interstate highway through there. He had, to, he had to travel the Roman road, all right? It probably took him 10 days of travel each way to get there and back. But Saul finds, but Barnabas finds Saul in Antioch and bring, uh, I'm going to pay attention to what I'm saying, not what, what I mean, not what I say. Barnabas travels to Tarsus to find Saul and brings him back to Antioch, okay? And they stay there for about a year. That's what it says, for a year they sent there. Now, now, why did Barnabas think Saul was the right man for the job? Well, we skipped over Acts 9 in our, in our uh, journey through Acts, but there's a couple of things that I think worth noting from there, okay? First, when Saul came to Jerusalem to meet with believers, as we mentioned, they didn't trust him. And they were afraid of him. It says that in Acts 9, 26. And it was only after Barnabas vouched for him that the apostles would even meet with him. Um, and, but the, um, the Jewish believers had a great fear of Paul. But these Greeks had never been a part of that persecution. They didn't have to have that kind of fear. There was no baggage with them, for example. So... Um, like if one of those guys I mentioned earlier that I had struggled with and the way they handle things, if they came and they supply preached for us, none of you guys would have any problem with them at all. And I'd be sitting there going, I'd have to be sitting there doing a lot of prayer to be, you know, have a good attitude and be happy and, be, and pray for God to speak through them, you know, because my, my godly self is going, yes, God, speak through them. Da, da, da. My, my lower nature that, that, that Jesus tr is getting rid of regularly would say... It, would want to go like, yeah, Lord, don't use him. Let him show how wrong he is. Teach him a lesson here today, you know? And, uh, but those Gentile believers wouldn't have any of that, any of that with, with Saul. So this is the first church where Saul could go and not have baggage. And then in, that, in Acts 9 also, God spe says specifically to Ananias, who baptized Paul, he says, go and find Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. He was called by God, and Barnabas recognized, whoa, we've got a Gentile church starting here. Saul, this is the place for him. And didn't just say, 
I wish Saul was here. That'd be great. He went and found him and got him and brought him back. Barnabas sought out the one person he knew to be called by God to teach and witness to the Gentiles. That was Saul. These Gentile believers had no history of persecution, and Saul understood the area and their culture. It was his perfect training ground. There's one other thing I want to mention here, too, that, that I haven't, you've noticed as I talk through this, I've consistently used the word disciple or believer or Christ followers for these people when talking about the early church, because up to this point, the word Christian didn't exist. That's, I think that's one of the coolest things in this passage. It says, it was only when a large number of Gentiles started following Jesus that the word Christian even came into existence. Now, some people thought it might have been a dismissive term. Some people think it means like little Christ. Uh, maybe it might have been an insult. I don't think so, though. I think it probably means just belonging to Christ or of the party of Christ. Just like uh, we mentioned the word Herodians or people who followed Herod or people who are Stoics, you know, follow, Sto or P Epicureans, follow Epicurean, how do you say his name, okay? I can't remember. Freudians, study Freud. There we go. It was somebody that we would all at least heard of at some point. Or like Parisian means somebody belonging to Paris, that kind of thing. So Christian was just a word used to say somebody who belongs to the party of Christ. And you may say, wait a minute, you said Christ didn't mean anything to them. They weren't looking for Messiah. And that's right. They didn't look at Christ as being, they were not Messiahettes or something like that, little Messiahs. For them, Christ, because it didn't have any other meaning, was just like a surname. Like, I'm Daryl Watts, you know, or Julius Caesar or something like that. So it was a title slash last name for them. And it became a perfect place for them to use that term that we now use for those of us who follow Jesus. And Jesus would be a common enough name in that world. And so they treated Christ just like a surname. Now here's what I want to tell you about Antioch. It was also the first place that the believers were identified as a church outside Jerusalem. We're just about to wrap up here. Up until this point, there were two uses of the word church. There was church with a big C, which meant everybody who believed in Jesus. Those who were called out by God to follow Jesus. And then there was what, just for identification we call church with a little c and that was the church in jerusalem so there was church everybody followed jesus and there was the church in jerusalem but now there was another church there was the church big church everybody followed jesus there was the church in jerusalem but now there was the church in antioch and it was a big deal now there are a lot of other legacies about the church in antioch we're going to look at some of those but they foreshadow how influential this church will become. And next week, we're going to look at the most powerful and important influence that this church had. But what we can get out of this passage today? Here's what I want you to think about. First, let's try not to be status quo disciples. Let's try to be bridge-building disciples. And don't be afraid to cross bridges with the gospel. If God gives the opportunity to share your faith with somebody... Don't think, well, would this person come to our church? Do we want them in this church? That's not the big, big deal. If you witness to somebody and there's another church where they fit in better, great. If there's not, let's make room for them here, even if we have to make a few changes on some things to make place for them to grow about Jesus. But you cross bridges to share the gospel wherever you can with anybody, no matter who. Second, do everything you can to be a Barney, to be an encourager. Yeah, there are times for you to correct things. There's time for you to fix things. But basically, 
we could all have a little more Barnabas in our life. To be a Barney who would go and encourage people, bless them in what they do, and help develop them as believers in Jesus. Third, I want you to pray, pray and prepare for your God-called leader. Well, in fact, let's expand that a little bit, okay? I put leaders there because not just your senior pastor, but other God-called leaders. We'll need some more deacons eventually. We'll need some more board members. We'll need people that are, that are, that are leading more small groups and things. So let's look for and develop those God-called leaders in our church, not just waiting till a senior, new senior pastor comes, but be praying and preparing for that. And then I think what's most important from the life of Barnabas here, be willing to rejoice in whatever way God leads us next. Now, having said that, we're going to close a little bit different this time because we're going to have this time, and uh, don't have Jeremy come up here. You're doing it, right, Jeremy? Okay. Jeremy, come up here and lead us, tell you about this survey we're having. But here's, I want to transition it from, from here. Antioch was a different church than Jerusalem because God at that point wanted a different church for a different kind of message. I'm not saying Fresno Church has to be different from where we are, but we need to be open that what Fresno Church was 20 years ago is not what we are now. But what does God want us to be in the future? And like the church at Antioch, let's be open to new ways that we're going to be praying and looking. Maybe God will make changes here, maybe he won't, I don't know. But our job is to be open to wherever God leads us. And so as Jeremy comes, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the... the